interestingly, the model for uh, Daybreak was um, was the New York Times cooking newsletter that mm. Sam Sifton put together. So the big questions at the time were, would people read it? Was there enough local news that you could actually put a <laughs> newsletter together? Uh, and, you know, could I make a go of it? Hi, everyone. This is your town manager, Alex Torby. In this Spotlight episode, I take a walk through Pine Park in Hanover with Rob Gerwitt, publisher of the daily email newsletter that many of us in the Upper Valley know and love, Daybreak. To the sweet sound of gravel footsteps and late summer insects, Rob and I cover a wide range of extremely important topics, not just to us in Hanover town government, but in our community in the Upper Valley and in the broader world. This includes topics like the value of trust and how people find and consume information, especially during and post-COVID, how information flows into and creates community or doesn't, and how that impacts local decision-making, especially as journalism and news has changed a lot over the last decade or so. The differences between economic and community development, how Daybreak works behind the scenes and its interesting history, what lessons can be reflected on from trying to engage a politically diverse audience, leadership values that can be learned from journalism, uh, unique requirements and dynamics about involvement and democracy, specifically in New England, and what the heck happened in Tupelo, Mississippi uh, in the 1940s. These are all not only really important topics to me, but as I mentioned, really important topics for all of us to reflect on and discuss in our community. If you don't you somehow live in the Upper Valley and don't already receive uh, the Daybreak email newsletter, there is a sign-up link in the show notes, as well as a link to the Governing Magazine article that Rob wrote many years ago about Tupelo, Mississippi. I really enjoyed uh, this conversation with Rob, and I hope you do as well. All right, folks. So this is Alex Torpy, your town manager here, and uh, I am with Rob Gerwitt of Daybreak, and we are walking in Pine Park right now. So you might hear some footsteps in the background, but Rob, this is a pretty nice day for us to take a walk. <laughs> it's a stunning day, and I feel like we deserve it after after the last few months. I think so too. I think so too. Um, so uh, I'm going to ask about a place that uh, is very far away from Hanover, New Hampshire, to kick this conversation off, but. Um, tell us a little bit about a, um, a town called Tupelo, Mississippi. Yeah. Um, well, uh, <laughs> Tupelo's got, got a, a, an extremely interesting story that back in my days as a, as a magazine journalist, I stumbled on, uh, because I got to know, a, a sociologist, a guy named uh, Vaughn Grisham, who taught at Ole Miss at the University of Mississippi. Mm. Um, and I'm going to stop for a moment as we let these joggers go past. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, Vaughn had made a, a, a specialty of studying Tupelo because it had gone from being one of the, one of the poorest communities in Mississippi back in the 1930s, which you can imagine was really saying something. Um, to a, uh, you know, to, to one of the small cities in the vanguard of, of the New South and um, in terms of both economic and community development. And, um, and what was, the, the thing that had struck me most was basically Vaughn, who is 
one of the most gifted storytellers I've ever run across. Uh, I, I, I basically sort of told the story of um, the development of of uh, of this town, uh, be, essentially because of the newspaper publisher mm. um, who had uh, who, who had come to understand essentially that you that. Uh, that the downtown business establishment back in the 1930s was unable to grow because all the people who fed it, the farmers and others who lived around, um, didn't have enough money to, to, uh, uh, to you know, to keep things prosperous. Um, and so the, the strategy that he hit upon was essentially to buy a good stud bull, <laughs> right. because this was, a, this was dairy country at the time. Um, and, um, and then to, to, uh, uh, essentially raise the quality of the, of the cows that were around so that they became better dairy cows, um, which in turn brought the local farmers more income, which in turn brought downtown merchants more income. Right. Um, and, uh, and he essentially institutionalized this into a community foundation that, over the years, became a really key piece of helping to steer Tupelo's development. So that's what interested me about it. And I wrote about Vaughn, but then also this, you know, the story of how all this happened, uh, which was um, really intriguing. And this this came up. I forget exactly what triggered this. Maybe it was discussing some of our upcoming plans last year with some of our business owners and you sent that uh, article over and it was interesting because you know there there was in there was a I don't know if I'm saying this the right way but there was an interest among business owners in the community before this sort of initiative to improve the downtown and improve the business the businesses but they were sort of going at it from maybe not the right angle and this was this sort of more community focused effort that if people prosper then businesses prosper exactly right right exactly. which is very interesting and, and a little bit of the difference between the phrase like economic development versus community development sure uh, economic development um i mean they you know you can you can interpret those two phrases uh in in, in multiple different sure, ways true. but um but you know the the notion Ideally, uh, good economic development also feeds community development. It, it you know, um, it benefits the schools. It benefits the um, the human capital of the community. Right. Uh, it, uh, you know, it, it kind of lifts everything around it. Um, but it's not just about developing the economy and local businesses and industries and, and other things. Well, and it's one of the things that I mean. I think people are talking about more and more. You know, as um, especially in kind of city or community planning circles all these fields are like continually continuously evolving and you know thinking about how we tend to measure sort of quote-unquote economic health you know well the gdp growth rate or the you know we've got yeah. these kind of numbers like that but at the end of the day i think there's probably a lot of people out there whether you're looking at the national level or state level or local level that there's something missing in some of those numbers and trying to think about ways well what what are the goals of the community the people who live there who work there who study there who visit all these different stakeholder groups and how do we create 
metrics or initiatives that, I don't know, that touch all of those different pieces, not just sort of, uh, you know, well, we earned X amount of money pre, well, what did right. that money do? Right. Did it go back into, I mean, because you could even, I mean, you know, we see this all across New Hampshire and Vermont, especially with short-term rentals. There's a difference between, you know, a, a homeowner renting out an in-law suite to help earn income so they can pay their taxes mm-hmm. um, or afford to send their kid to college or something like that versus a, a, a company out of state buying up a bunch of properties and just renting it out and all the money basically leaving this, the community. The community, right. Even and, though those might be looked at similarly with some of those kind of metrics. Sure, exactly right. And, and I mean, that's actually a really good example because uh, the, the metrics also don't capture the... Uh, the impact on the community itself from having so right. much of short-term rentals around. So what happens if, as in uh, at least one town around here, you know, something, I, I don't remember the exact figure, but it's, you know, it's a substantial portion, a third maybe of the, of the housing is short-term rental that affects, uh, that affects the schools, that affects who's going to be there to patronize a hardware store. It right, affects... Right. You know, it, it essentially shifts the nature of the economy that's possible uh, in a community, and um, mm. and so you know the metrics can't capture is this the kind of town we actually want to be? Right. Um, right, and those things might change unintentionally. Sure. Right, a town that's slowly moving towards, let's say, more short-term rentals that are owned by out-of-state kind of things, and the money's le- like the people staying there yeah they're they're probably not going to the hardware store right but they're going to be going you know there's other things they might do and you know those are i don't know if the things are good or bad necessarily on their own but what what are the goals of the community and and do these align right uh and and that's just a that's a that's a discussion and sometimes a heated discussion right that that the people uh who live in the town and the people who own property in the town you know need to have on an ongoing basis and um and you're right. I mean, in many cases, this stuff just happens, and it happens sort of slowly over time, right? Uh, until suddenly, you're grappling with a whole set of issues that five years ago, you know, you weren't even aware might be a problem. Right, right. Now it sounds like you might be an advocate for people in communities having access to more information. <laughs> <laughs> Am I reading between well, the lines that, there correctly? That gives you that impression. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, people tell me I'm great at picking up on those things. Um, so tell us a little bit about, I mean, hopefully, uh, probably most people that are listening to this probably are familiar with Daybreak. Um, I got introduced to it through one of the select board members in Hanover after I uh, accepted the job here. And um, I was living in New Jersey and it was a couple months before I was starting. And I asked them, what are some of the best ways that I can kind of get up to speed on what's happening, um, you know, in the community? And they said, sign up for Daybreak. Mm. Um, and I read it every morning for, and I started to feel like, I mean, obviously now, especially now a year later, I can, I can appreciate how little I knew coming up here, but also how much more I knew than I could have known. Um, so probably a lot of people are familiar with it, but. Tell us a little bit about uh, about it. What was the genesis, and um, yeah, give us a little kind of synopsis. Sure. The, well, uh, it began, uh, or I began it back in 2019, early in the year. Uh, I'd been working for uh, a, a local startup that was based in White River Junction um, that some people may remember called Daily UV. 
Um, and it was really sort of an attempt to, uh, to, to think about um, and then create a, a product that answered this. You know, how do you, how do you reinvent local news for the digital age? Mm. Uh, and it, it lasted about uh, uh, somewhat over five years. Um, it was, uh, um, I, I, there were lots of things that were interesting and um, perceptive about it. And I think there were lots of things that were uh, just sort of misguided about it. And, um, uh, uh, and uh, ultimately it folded. Um, I, I actually left it before that happened. Um, uh, and, uh, but as, as part of that work, uh, a couple of my colleagues and I had been had been tossing around the question of uh, whether a local newsletter landing in people's email inboxes uh, was um, was a good idea or not. And we it, it was mm. it was one of these cases where we simply did not know. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, and I suspected it would work because there were already models out there that. Uh, uh, that were not unlike what Daybreak became. There was uh, a really popular national newsletter called The Skim, mm. um, and uh, Quartz had launched its newsletter. Um, and in some ways, the model, uh, <laughs> uh, interestingly, the model for uh, Daybreak was um, was the New York Times cooking newsletter that mm. Sam Sifton put together. Not so much, obviously, for the content, uh, but because he's just an amazing writer and had this, con ha still has this conversational uh, tone that right. makes, uh, you know, what can sometimes be a an esoteric subject um, interesting and you just, you just want to keep reading. And so, so at a certain point, as it, be as it became clear that I was going to be leaving that job, um, uh, you know, I decided it, it would be kind of cool to try to launch something like this mm. um, and see if it went anywhere. You know, would so the big questions at the time were: Would people read it? Was there enough local news that you could actually put a <laughs> newsletter together? Uh, and you know, could I make a go of it? I, I had to have other income, so it was it of necessity. Um, uh, you know, it was something that I did basically between 4.30 and 6.30 in the morning. Oh, uh, man. And then, uh, and then I'd launch into the rest of my day. I'd work as a freelance uh, editor and, and copy editor and other, other things like that. And, um, uh, and so it was a very stripped-down thing in the early days. Uh, and um, as time went on, it became somewhat more complicated because... Uh, it basically because the audience wanted that. Um, uh, you know, it started with 25 people who were all people I knew, friends and, and, uh, and acquaintances in the community. And, and it grew pretty quickly um, up to, I, I still remember when it hit about a thousand subscribers, I, uh, I stopped promoting it because I figured it's not going to get much better than this. Right. And, and where are you at now? And uh, it's at 13,000 now. <laughs> um, and, um, so, so I was, uh, just, um, I was content at a thousand. Mm. Um, and, um, the, uh, but at the same time, 
you know, certain sections of it, that what is now the heads up section, I, it was essentially an event section, um, had grown a little more ambitious as time went on. I started putting that together the day before, uh, but then I still could put most of it together. And the, each individual item was pretty short. There was a, there was a, uh, there was a sea change um, when the pandemic hit. Uh, mm. And it was, it was really interesting. I still remember, you know, that weekend in mid-March 2020, uh, when uh, everything shut down. And I realized, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to change the complete nature of what this is about and, and the issues it tackles. Uh, I, I reached out to a friend of mine who, um, who was a, a, an occupational medicine uh, specialist who uh, was really good at just sort of understanding, uh, you know, uh, medical journals and statistics and all sorts of other things that, uh, you know, we just needed to know um, in order to be reliable. And uh, the, um, so he became a, a kind of informal advisor. Uh, and, um, uh, and you could feel in the emails that people sent um, and watching the growth of, of subscribership um, that there was this incredible hunger for mm. reliable information in the midst of this thing none of us had ever dealt with before right uh, and um and so daybreak at that point grew from uh, i think it was from three thousand subscribers to probably seven thousand by the end of the year uh it was it was in you know in my little newsletter world terms that was rapid growth i have to yeah. tell you that to me thirteen thousand subscribers seems like a lot of people but uh in the national newsletter world it's a you know, it's a tiny little pond. Right. Um, uh, yeah, but I mean, when we think about audience saturation in given communities, you know, I think that, um, you know, I remember doing a lot of, you know, social media and analytics stuff with my company back in the day, and people would often look at, like, their number of followers on social media, and, well, we have to get to 1,000. We're like, but what is your audience? And also right. then, what's the percent of people that are engaging with your content? Exactly. And my guess is that, you have a pretty high open rate and click rate on a lot of your content that people are signed up and they're not throwing away the email every morning, but they're actually reading it. Right. It's, uh, we can, we can get as deep into the, into the, um, <laughs> online newsletter world weeds as you'd like. But, uh, but in general, um, in the local news world, something on the order of a 20 to 30 percent open rate mm -hmm. is considered good and just to clarify for people listening there's a difference between sending a newsletter out that's the number of subscribers so every morning right now daybreak goes out to about 13,300 or so subscribers but not all those people open it and so uh so open rate is is uh you know is a, a metric that can be useful for getting a sense of how people engage with it. And um, uh, and Daybreak, pretty much from the beginning, had something on the order of a 70% wow. open rate. Um, now, I should also say that these days, uh, it's impossible, not impossible, but it's extremely difficult to measure the open rate because about uh, um, somewhat over a year and a half ago, Apple instituted new privacy features. Right. Uh, and um, the impact of those was essentially to to make uh, the open rate unreliable because um, anybody who gets email uh, through Apple 
um, their email uh, automatically registers as opened whether or not they actually open it. Right, right. Um, uh, similarly, there's some issues with uh, the, the Microsoft emails that underlie Dartmouth.edu addresses. Mm. Uh, and, um, uh, and so uh, it's harder now for me to really know what's going on. Right. But I, I think it's I safe to figure oh. somewhere between 65 and 72% on any given day. Yeah, that is pretty high. Yeah. So that's great. I mean, and, and I would imagine, especially, I mean, the timing of everything just getting set up kind of not, it sounded like about a year before COVID kind of really took off right. that yeah. this, uh, it's interesting to think about, I mean, had you gotten started with that a little later or like the timing been off a little bit, but to have a little bit of a baseline and then people probably just searching for places of not just... Because one of the things that I think finding more and more online is I don't think that we fully appreciate how much content online is written by bots <laughs> these days. Yeah. And especially, I mean, it seems especially, I don't know if this is true or not, it's totally non-scientific, but in like DIY, home repair, uh, off-grid kind of, all this homesteading kind of, all mm -hmm. these websites and, you know, and it's very, I've become very sensitive to the language where it becomes very obvious that something is getting collected, collated and put out. But I think that people are looking for personalized human touch things, even as we're, you know, hugely advancing all this kind of AI technology, there's still something very different about reading Daybreak, for example, where, you know, your tone very clearly comes through um, and is very engaging. Um, and it, it's almost, it feels like a conversation with you to some degree, and that you know that somebody's reviewed it. You know, something, there's not stuff going in there that's totally made up or, you know, that there's a person uh, who's actually kind of coordinating all of this and that right. the person is trusted and trust with information, obviously, today, such a high um, kind of priority. Yes. Um... Uh, I'll, I'll, I, I should interject that I make mistakes, um, and, um, uh, and so, um, it, you know, I try really hard to have everything in there be accurate and trustworthy, but, you know, like any journalist, um, I blow it sometimes, and, um, uh, and... And then you correct it, like, the next I day. I do correct it the yeah. next day, and, and it's, uh, but... Um, unless you're journalist, you don't know the sinking feeling. Like even Mr. Oh, yeah. name. Oh my God. It's uh, yeah. Just, um, well, after you hit the send button. Yeah, that's hit, a, right. Yeah. And which is one of the unforgiving things about that's true uh, about an email newsletter is once you hit send, it's out there. There's really not you, you can't call. Right, it's not a website where you can right. sort of on a website you can you can uh, you know make a change. Responsible news organizations note that they've made the change. Right. Right. Um, but. Um, uh, uh, but you know, I have mixed feelings about that. I don't. I don't think it's absolutely necessary. But, um, but yeah, with a newsletter, it's there's nothing you can do. It's gone. Right. Um, uh, but yes, I mean, I think um, it's it's especially in this day and age, the you know the need for uh, for information that's not just accurate, but that's actually rooted in. Um, uh, in, in facts and in 
uh, a, a reporter's best effort to understand, uh, uh, synthesize, and get at something resembling um, the truth. You know, everything, I, as I'm talking, I'm realizing uh, everything I say can be picked apart by somebody who wants to argue over what are facts, what are tr what's truth, you know, can journalism be objective? I mean, all of these are live and interesting issues, but nonetheless, I think, I think most people who are interested in their communities want to know what's going on around them. They want to be able to understand, you know, they want to be able to understand it and they want to be able to rely on sources of information that they know, uh, you know, have done their best uh, to get it right. Um, and uh, that's one of the key values that uh, training in newspapering and in journalism um, and in news gathering in general, uh, those, are, those are really key pieces of that kind of training. That, you're, that even though there are plenty of publications out there that have an axe to grind, um, mm. or where a, a particular writer um, has a point of view that, uh, that they're trying to get across, um, uh, you know, I, I, I hew to the older value that uh, you should not be doing that. Right. right? Um, that, uh, that, you know, I, when I think about this um, in particular in personal terms about Daybreak, which has a fairly politically diverse mm -hmm. um, readership. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I learned early on not to make any assumptions about right. uh, what that readership looks like or what they believe. And so, uh, in the end, I want, uh, I want a reader coming from anywhere on the ideological spectrum or uh, in, in, in their own personal experiences to feel comfortable reading it. Not like it's not, you know, it's not something that says this is not for you. Right. Well, and what's, what's interesting too, I mean, spending, let's spend a moment to linger on truth and all, all, all this is so, so interesting and so difficult. And I would think that there, there's not some sort of answer to any of this. These are all I don't think judgment calls and, and, and ideas and opinions. And, and I, cause I think what's interesting is that a lot of things today, the trust is created and trust may not actually be the right word, but the, I'll say trust in air quotes is created by the provider of the information or policy or whatever thing. Um, having such a specialized audience, that they can just say exactly what people agree with or want to hear mm. so that you're creating um, maybe loyalty is better than trust almost. Um, but it's not, but you're not going to, that person is not going to be able to get that diverse audience. It's going to be super specific. And it sounds like what you're saying is that part of what you're trying to do is build trust with an, uh, the diverse audience that you mentioned but not doing it that way where you're not just telling people what they want to hear or doing something that, right. um, you know, they, uh, they would agree with and say, yeah, I'm, I'm with Rob. I'm, yeah. You know, and then they get fired up and then, you know, that's kind of the thing, but there's, there's some other mechanism of getting people to kind of buy in to what you're providing as being trustworthy. And what, what are, some of those things like what is the the thing that gets people interested even if they don't agree necessarily 
That's a thought-provoking question. <laughs> um, I, you know, my, my answer, I think, actually lies in the nature of the Upper Valley, mm. which is, uh, <laughs> which is a, uh, in lots of ways, uh, a remarkably diverse, mm. um, interesting place with a lot of different kinds of people who, who live here and who have lots of different kinds of interests. Right. And, uh, and so if you're trying to reflect that, uh, um, you know, I, it feels to me like it's incumbent on you to, uh, to, to do your best. I think I said this before, not to make assumptions about, um, what people will, what will interest people or what, uh, you know, what they uh, will or won't accept, um, uh, other than, you know, uh, other than getting things right. Uh, mm. I, I did something in today's newsletter that was just plain out flat wrong i'll run a correction tomorrow and um uh and um uh you know that kind of thing people are right to jump all over it right um, and i bet they do and they do yeah yeah which is great I right mean, I, I i i you know one of one of the things i also learned really early on was that there are a lot of you know the upper valley is filled with people who yes. know a lot more about their communities and about right. particular issues and everything else than i do and right. so being able to being able to have that kind of feedback is just is is just gold to uh to, to somebody who you know who cares about this place um hmm. so yes it's it, it, so people do correct me and um and and i have a kind of not very clearly delineated threshold for when it <laughs> right. needs a correction when it right. doesn't but um uh uh it's um but it's just part and parcel of of doing this i i think um uh you know the one of the things that i well to go back to what i was saying about the very early days i learned really quickly uh also that that in fact there is enough news going on in right. the upper valley right. if you define news mm. um, and now i'm doing air quotes broadly mm. um so yes there's uh uh, there are the stories that appear in the Valley News, which I, I still consider an invaluable um, presence uh, for for this region. Um, but uh, there also, you know, the moose in somebody's backyard is also kind of right. news, and um, uh, and so that photograph uh, that somebody sends me, or the or the you know the video clip, um, I, I also think of as news, and the. Uh, you know, I, I wish there were more uh, newsletters slash blogs like mm. Susan Apel's Artful, mm. which covers culture and arts in the region. Uh, that's a, um, uh, you know, she's just done great work, and I think in opening people's eyes to what's going on around, just as Alex Hansen at the Valley News mm. does um, in, in culture, uh, you know, in the culture of the Upper Valley. And, um, and those are very specific kind of, um niches i guess is that part of the value there i think so yeah yeah, yeah. and uh similarly you know thetford's got uh got side note um uh which um lee shen and, and nick clark work on uh it, you know they've got often a point of view on things but it nonetheless is opening you know uh, opening up interesting topics and and 
providing really um, good insights into what's going on in that particular town, which in often those are issues that also resonate in other towns. And so mm. it's also a valuable source of information. So, so in the end, I think there is more than enough going on uh, in, in publication terms to do something like what Daybreak does, which right. is bring them together into a single place so that, so that on any given day, you can get a sense of, of what's going on in the Upper Valley. Right. Morning. Uh, Morning. Yeah. Uh, the so we're we're standing uh, down by the river uh, in um, in Pine Park, and the, you know the trees go up kind of forever uh, uh, above us. And of course, it's late summer, so they're still fully leafed out. But you can see little bits of change. A little bit, yeah. It's just 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 beginning. But I'm also I'm a huge pine tree fan, and so uh, I love it out here. Yeah. It's like this is the sort of favorite, <laughs> uh, the kind of pine needle ground. Pine needle ground. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the Adirondacks as a kid throughout my whole life. And um, uh, where my family's at over there is all these huge white pines. Oh, my God. And so it's just all, you get a lot of sap in the summer on stuck on things. Yeah. But, but you don't have to mow your lawn because it's all pine needles. <laughs> and it smells good and it's soft and... You and know. it's been, those have been falling for years, so yeah, they're right. several inches deep. Yep, yep. Yeah. yeah. So, um, thinking about, uh, well, actually, there's one thread here that I want to um, uh, see if I'm, I might be connecting uh, dots that are too far apart, but um, there's a conversation we haven't put out on the podcast yet, but it's with a uh, professor at Dartmouth who... Actually, I learned about from reading Daybreak. Um, it was a study done a couple months ago where they used fMRI brain imaging scans to look at what was happening in people's brains when they were building consensus around different topics. Mm -hmm. And part of what came out from that was that um, it's sort of looking at what leadership means as far as, you know, you know they were given kind of ambiguous material to as a group, try to build a common understanding around and that the sort of leader in the group was not someone who comes in and pushes a narrative or an idea, but is actually someone who's fleshing out things from other people and that, that, and they can, they can see, I mean, it's amazing because you're looking at the activity happening in people's brains. It's not just surveys, right. yeah, you know, exactly. being filled out and that people are aligning around the people who ask questions help other people share, restate things, you know, and things of that nature. And that really, you know, and I think about that a lot as far as, you know, my role as a manager uh -huh. in the town organization um, or the town in the community or any sort of series of things like that. And I'm kind of getting some of those vibes and thinking about what you're doing with Daybreak, right? And maybe even journalism more broadly. And I'm sure there's different opinions on this, but that in part, I mean, what Daybreak is doing is facilitating, right? You're pulling things from, you're getting things from others and, and gathering. And there's like a, there's kind of a two-way, well, there's definitely a two-way uh, kind of communication there, but it's not like, it's not coming all from Daybreak or from Rob kind of top down. It's being sourced from others, right. but that by doing that consistently, along sort of a set of values that that's going to build trust in daybreak 
if that I right right yes. yeah I mean, I'd, I'd like to I, I'd like to think that's the case um, the you know in, in a lot of ways I think of I think of in part I, I think of what I'm doing each day because my background is in magazine journalism um, as putting out a little tiny magazine that you know you can hmm. read in five to eight minutes um, uh, and it's uh, and at the same time doing it in a way that essentially says to the reader look you're uh, you're interested in where you live um, and you should be able to know about what's happening here so here's here's news but also here's some other interesting stuff that it's just like it's going on around you and uh, you might resonate to mm-hmm. it uh, and um, and so in in my in my head uh, you know it, it's there's a uh, the the readers of the upper valley are uh, curious uh, smart um, you know uh, and engaged with uh, all the communities and issues around them uh, and uh, and so this says uh, you know here's some stuff you shouldn't know about that's just you know you can make part of your day or you can you can talk about it with your friends or family or mm. uh, your colleagues um, and um, and that's uh, you know that's kind of the the if there's a guiding uh, ethic to it that's that's it and so it sounds like I mean as far as values are concerned you know truth which is we could probably spend 12 hours talking about what that means and not get anywhere. Um, but it sounds like there's other things too, like, I don't know if relevance, is that the right word? Um, so it's not just things that are true, because you could point out things that are true that people aren't going to be interested in reading, right? right? Yeah. Or that aren't related to their lives or community or right. anything, or things that are true, but they're all negative things. Right. And, but that's not what no. journalism, and it's about Daybreak, but also I think more broadly. I mean, wh- what is your, so how do you, what's the sort of editorial decision-making, not only about what to include, but how to frame what you're including and what's the, what's the goal? What's the, what's the ultimate purpose of what, what do you want? What's the impact that you want Daybreak to have, you know, um, like in, in the Upper Valley? Or the impact that it's already having, but what's what's the what's the ultimate purpose? <laughs> um, boy, five words or less. I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's see. Choosing items is, uh, it, you know, I hate to I hate to be this off the cuff about it, but in the end, it really kind of comes down to does this interest me or not, <laughs> and um, uh, and. Oh, and then next to that is also, okay, this doesn't totally interest me, but I think it's important. Mm. Um, and so, one of the one of the uh, nice things about the, the the format that I I kind of stumbled on and then use in Daybreak is um, there's no real. It's not like you know, it's not like you're a reader is committing to an eight thousand word story right, on right. any given topic. It's usually at most 80 to 90 words and um, you can skim it um, you can usually tell not always but often tell from the headline whether it's something you're interested in not in or not and so 
it's not like you're making a big commitment to learning about something. Right, um, right. And, uh, and so the gift of that is that you can read an item, never click on the link that right. it takes you to, uh, but, uh, but learn something that's valuable. Um, or, uh, in, you know, in plenty of cases, it's a story that is actually interesting to somebody, and then they do click on it, and then, you know, they, they get the full piece. Um, right, you could you could just read Daybreak every day and be more, sure. and be you know have more of an idea of what was happening certainly than if you didn't. Right. Right. Exactly. And and uh, you know, in in the end, I, that's really kind of enough for me. I mean, I, I have this. Um, I, I have this sense of that. Uh, I think there are two big things that local information and news and media um, are really important for. One is that we, uh, we live in these communities. It's up to us to make them work. Right. Uh, and uh, and in, in kind of, uh, you know, not to get all misty-eyed about it, but um, I think... <laughs> Please do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that democracy really depends on uh, not just a well-informed population, uh, electorate, you know, and population of people, but it also, you know, democracy is sort of a, it's a practice. It's, it's mm -hmm, something, it's mm -hmm. not something that you come out of the womb knowing how to right. do. Uh, and, uh, and and I, I really believe to my core that um, that local, that good, responsible local media plays a role in helping to um, in in helping people become good citizens. It helps you, uh, you know, the, the distinguish between truth and fiction. And I, I think more important than anything else. It helps you understand that there are multiple points of view out there. Right. Um, that there are multiple issues you may never have thought were important, but it turns out they are. Um, and uh, and it it helps you um, sort of uh, you know understand the things that you, as somebody living in the community, should know about if you're going to be engaged in uh, in helping make the place you live a better place. Mm. Um, and um, and so that's, you know, that's sort of one big bucket. And the other, uh, which I think is equally important, um, is that it, it can play a role in helping people connect to one another to develop sympathy for mm. the plight, uh, you know, the, 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 the challenges that somebody is facing or um, to, uh, to even just have some, uh, <laughs> you know, some common piece of, of, oh, that's really interesting to talk about with other people. I mean, there, you know, connection as part of community life doesn't get talked about much. Right. But, but, but it's part and parcel of what being part of a community is. Uh, and, so, um, and so providing a way for people to find points of connection, um, whatever it is that they, they choose to have it be, uh, you know, I think is a vital role for local, um, 
uh, for local news organizations to play. Um, the Valley News does it in its own way. Daybreak does it in its own way. Um, but, uh, uh, but you know, these are these. I in if they're working well, I believe make community life both better and stronger. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I think it is possible for people uh, to think about news, quote unquote, and put that in a bucket and sort of put it aside. I'm going to look at the news. I'm going to like know the news and then I'm going to like turn the news off and kind of go back to life. But what you're describing is a much more integrated, I don't know, ecosystem of stuff happening. And, you know, the piece that is, I mean, all the pieces I think are interesting but the one that is of a special importance uh, from my perspective is how it relates to how people engage with decision-making in their communities. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, the, and there's so many more layers to this. I mean, especially in places like the Upper Valley where it's more rural and creating connections between people can be challenging just because of geographic distance. Like right. there's so much value, um, especially these days, I feel like, to all of that. But in thinking about how people show up or if they even show up, um, you know, which is a topic that I'm starting to try and explore a little bit here is just talking about, you know, how town meetings work or don't work in different communities. You know, I go to a lot of these, actually going to one uh, later this afternoon, uh, town manager meetings in Vermont and New Hampshire of these groups. And, you know, we kind of uh, a, a lot of good moral support for each other, but also. Um, a lot of interesting similarities and challenges of what's happening in different communities, especially around really big long-term stuff that has decades of consequences, isn't particularly interesting. Often infrastructure, I think it's put in this bucket. Um, but I think there's a lot more related to that. And, um, and some of that might be this sort of, you know, prosperity sounds a little too I don't know. It's in my mind, and maybe it's my own bias, it's a little too like wealth oriented in something, but maybe that's not right. But something about community success um, or sustainability more broadly than environmental. And, you know, understanding, you know, 10 years out and being able to engage in like thoughtful, nuanced, constructive conversations with other people who you might live around the corner from and have wildly different ideas about what the future should hold Mm -hmm. and like what mechanisms do we have out there to help people have those conversations. And I think we do this kind of weird thing a little bit where we, we have some of the institutions that especially here are very old. Um, You know, we've been doing um, democracy in most of new England, a similar way in a very specific way uh, for a couple centuries now Um, but there, it, it feels a little bit like to some degree, it's like a set it and forget it. Well, we have the town meeting and that's when, you know, that's where people show up and they make decisions, but it's so much more complex right. than that. And wh- how people are engaging these issues throughout the year in other communities on similar issues. I mean, there's so much, um, there's so much there that is important, but there's not really like a coordinating stakeholder. Um, but Daybreak um, is kind of that a little bit, to some degree, is sort of connecting a lot of different right. pieces. I mean, to some degree, and yes, but I think, you know, inevitably, I think being in the position I'm in, I, I see what's missing often more than I mm. see what's there. So so to, to, to speak to what you were just 
talking about. Um, one of the, you know, one of the, the big issues as newspapers have struggled um, over the last couple of decades, um, uh, one of the things that's happened is that um, newsrooms shrank and their ability to give coverage to municipal affairs or to right. a committee meeting or a commission meeting or the planning board meeting or the school board meeting, um, uh, you know, has diminished. It's just... It was never, you know, they could never cover it all anyway. I mean, you know, there are something on the order of 42 towns um, uh, and a couple of cities in in what you think of as, as the Upper Valley. And the Valley News' ability to cover all 42 of them, right. I mean, it impo- it's an impossible it's Multiple town right, exactly. meetings a night. Exactly. <laughs> right. um, and, um, and, and most of the, in this region, most of those, uh, in fact, uh, you know, most of those town meetings um, are... Uh, uh, are, are done by volunteers. It's just people right. in town giving, you know, doing their best to, to help the places they live, right? So, um, uh, so the way that, that ordinary residents of a town have to, um, to engage with that is either to show up to the meeting itself, which rarely happens, right. um, unless, uh, unless they're, uh, you know, sort of perennial uh, participants, or it's a specific, uh, or it's a specific hot hits, button issue right. that's got that's got people riled up, um, uh, or they can read the minutes, um, but the minutes are often really hard to parse. Yeah, uh, and um, uh, and so most people don't bother, and so the you know the sort of value that news coverage adds is it can put things in context, um, it can help you understand what was actually important, um, right. it can tell you what happened. Uh, without having to wade through um, what the minutes were like. So, um, uh, there's an, so from my point of view, there's, there's, there's not enough of that. There aren't enough uh, ways for people to engage with what's been happening in their towns um, that, that make it really easy for them to, to get there and to understand what's been going on. And I've been really quite taken with... Uh, um, an effort that uh, originated uh, in Chicago by a, with a nonprofit there called uh, City Bureau, um, which developed uh, a, uh, a a project called the Documenters Project. Um, initially in Chicago, it's now expanded to a bunch of other cities, um, and uh, uh, it essentially trains and pays um, uh, ordinary people to go to. Uh, uh, you know, public committee meetings, the school board, the sanitation district, I mean, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, take notes and then put them up on a website so that, uh, uh, so that anybody who's interested can find out what happened. Right. That's a really good thing. Interesting. Um, and, uh, the, um, the guy who runs it, uh, who lives in Brooklyn is actually from Burlington, Vermont. He's yeah. really interested in expanding into rural areas. Um, and uh, at the moment, they're talking, uh, in fact, with some um, some news people in uh, in um, uh, on the western side of Vermont about it, uh, uh, about sort of starting stuff like this up there. Um, at the same time, uh, the New Hampshire News Collaborative, hmm. which brings together uh, news organizations um, from around New Hampshire. Um, has just 
launched a pilot project down in the southwest corner of the state that is essentially modeled on that um, on that project. Um, I think they call it the Civic Documentaries Project. Okay. Um, and it's uh, it's being done with uh, the Keene Sentinel, um, which is blanking on the other newspaper, but. Um, uh, but the paper is actually part of the same newspaper family as the Valley News, um, part of Newspapers of New England, and uh, and so it'll be um, it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. I had so I had a before that project sort of hit the news. I began trying to organize uh, with um, uh, the, the the some of the newspapers in this area, the Valley News. Uh, the Standard in Woodstock, uh, the, the White River Valley Herald uh, in Randolph, um, and the Journal Opinion in Bradford, to talk, just to talk over whether this is something we might collectively want to see right. happen. Um, and we're still in the middle of those discussions. So we were talking to Melanie Plender, who runs the, the New Hampshire News Collaborative. Um, and one of the key things she said that really jumped out at me uh, was that uh, they've done the initial uh, sort of request for uh, interest to see if, if they could find people who would be willing to become documentaries. Um, they had room for 10 people, 15 applied. Um, and uh, the, the thing that, um, uh, the thing that she thought was most remarkable and, and I do too, is that they were fully expecting um, that basically the, the gadflies in town around Keene and so right, right. would be the ones who signed up to do this. Not the case? That was not the case. Interesting. Um, instead, it was people who said, uh, I want to help out my local newspaper. Hmm. Or it was people who said, I think, uh, you know, I think it's really valuable for, for my fellow townspeople and my neighbors to understand what's going on and I want to be able to make help make that happen um, and hmm. you know they're going to get five weeks of training from uh, from news organizations and others I, I mean it'll be really intriguing to see what happens but I, I but that fact that there that uh, and I think this is probably true in every community there are people who do not have an axe to grind but right, right, do want right. to make sure that uh, you know, that sort of the, the process of democracy works well and that solid information about what's going on is a key part of that. There are people like that in every community. And so being able to find them um, and harness that goodwill uh, to, to keep the rest of us better informed um, is, you know, uh, it is valuable and noble work. And, but it takes work and it takes money to make it happen. And so there are lots of things that make it hard. I'm going to stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> we really were, you know, feel like we were like in the, you know, wilder, you know, I don't know, the science, we the, the quiet of nature. And now we've like, no, we're not. this is what it felt like uh, a few years ago. I did some uh, section hiking on the Appalachian Trail for a couple days. One of my friends and he, like, he popped back out, you know, onto like a road and you're like, whoa, I know. had forgotten all that was there. You know, all of this is, or were you, sorry, I didn't, go, go okay. Um, it's interesting because one of the things that I think there's so many, there's so many interesting things from that. Um, and one is, I think a lot of communities are struggling 
with engaging people in a volunteer capacity in meaningful ways. And I think we're seeing a shift of the kinds of things that people want to do. And now I might be biased because, you know, I've spent a lot of time on our rescue squad in South Orange and I'm a big fan of people, you know, being volunteer firefighters and EMS and all that. And I do think we can, you know, there's ways that we can get more people engaged and actually some, some models that some places have experimented with and which would be very valuable in the upper valley is providing housing in exchange for volunteer time. Um, uh, but I think that, um, you know, I've gone to, you know, a million conferences and things where people talk about the difficulty of engaging volunteers and they'll say, you know, you, you gotta, uh, you know, you can't ask too much and, you know, be really careful because people are donating their time and, you know, but you can't really rely on them to do kind of mission critical stuff. And I, I've been on like panels before where people are saying that and I'm like, I'm sorry, I got to like have a different perspective here. Volunteer, you know, especially when I was in office, volunteer mayor or volunteer EMT, we do, you know, 1,500 911 calls a year and never missed one. That's a lot for volunteers, 100% volunteer run organization. And, you know, that's like that across the country. There's so many places that do that. So I think volunteers can be expected to do very important kind of intense things but it's finding something that they feel like is a meaningful right. contribution. Exactly. And, you know, there are some committees and we've got a couple in Hanover that are like doing, I mean, you think about sustainable Hanover and the amount of work that has been done, especially over the last few years, that's meaningful. And people are very engaged there. Mm -hmm. But I think you go to a lot of towns and some of these committees, you're kind of sitting around. There's not a whole lot going on, chatting a little bit. It doesn't feel like you're really advancing things in the community. But what you're describing... I mean, it's like that there are people sort of waiting in the wings, but there's not, you know, that person who jumps at that opportunity, there is no opportunity like that before that. Right. right? There's nothing, that person's totally untapped right now. And what's so interesting is that like governments, I think, put a, some governments put in some effort at trying to do things like be transparent. And often what that means is, you know, putting many hour long meetings online and creating minutes and producing a lot of documentation that sometimes is very valuable and important to do. But also I think about like our budget process and we want to engage people in multiple kind of layers. You know, not everybody's going to go into every cell on the spreadsheet. We want to provide it to the people who do, but how do you get someone who's not going to spend 10 hours doing that engaged in that process so that they know a little bit more when they come to vote a town meeting the following year. And, and it sounds what you're talking about, like those programs feel like they're sort of bridging some things a little bit because they're taking, I mean, the meetings are happening currently, but a lot of people don't go to them. And even if they put minutes out or put the two hour video online, I mean, who's going to watch that right. two hour thing right. as here I am recording a long podcast, but, um, but well, I think anybody's still listening. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And so this is sort of taking that it's, it's connecting. You've got people in the community who want to find ways to add value to their community. And in almost a sort of meta sense, this value add is finding ways to get more people plugged into the information and what's happening in the community. They're sort of taking the information. They're taking people in the community. And again, if, if it, I mean, I really could be connecting dots here that aren't, but it feels like facilitating. Uh, yeah. 
Like it's not, it's not pushing, which I just think there's, right. you know, in whether it's people uh, who are no. frustrated with journalism or right. politics or like, there's a lot of frustration about agendas being driven really hard in that way. Exactly. And you know, and I, I, I mean, I, I, just to return to the original, Here, why don't we do a loop down? the original uh, uh, topic of this, I'll talk about something I actually know about, um, which is, uh, you know, I, uh, there's there's this sort of strand within uh, mostly uh, the, the leg legacy uh, journalism, local news world in particular, that essentially says, look, it, it is your civic duty right. to um, to read the paper and to understand what's going on. Um, and you know what? Yeah, it is. Right. But that's not what's going to convince people. To no, it. right. That's right. And so that notion that you can you can push people by right. either shaming them or, right. or you know taking some other approach uh, to do something that just does not hold in this world anymore. Right. Um, and uh, and so so the challenge is always how do you uh, you know how do you entice people? How do you make something? How how do you uh, shape something so that it responds to something that they feel themselves feel a need for or that intrigues them or that interests them or surprises and delights them. I mean, there are lots of ways mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of slicing that, but, but in the end, what you're doing, uh, is, um, trying to appeal to, um, people where they are and draw them into something that is civically valuable. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, in the, in the case of what you're talking about that, you know, that's been a challenge for local government mm -hmm. for decades and yeah. it will continue to be one. Uh, but, but the notion that you can, that you can, uh, put everything out in minutes or in, you know, in video of a three hour meeting, um, and have people, uh, engaged by that, that's just not going to work. And so, I, uh, so the, the question is, how do you, um, I, I, I'm actually, a. uh, big fan of town finance committees mm. um, because which uh, in some towns have just completely fallen by the wayside but but uh, uh, I, I I like them because uh, at least in the ones I was most familiar with the people on them saw it as their responsibility and also their challenge to uh, to to take the fairly abstruse and difficult stuff of right. town budgets and right. school budgets and other things um, and translate it into words um, and presentations that ordinary people in their town could understand and then mm. make decisions on. That's that kind of mindset that, right. that, that, that says, you know, I know this stuff is tough, but I'm going to help you understand it. That's really what you, you want. And there are people in every town who can do that. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's such a good model to replicate into other policy areas, too. Because um, I think that, yeah, I mean, um, you know, the kind of coming to the governing body meeting, for example, and kind of going through all the, there's a lot of formality, even in informal places like Hanover, there's just a lot of sort of stuff you got to do. And not all of it is interesting, but some of it is. And I think for some people, you can lose the important stuff in everything. And like, so what you're saying is you have a group of people that are distilling down and kind of connecting those dots a little bit in that way too. And, uh, you know, we're thinking about, we're trying to brainstorm ways to create more opportunities for people to do that in Hanover mm -hmm. on different issues that are important. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and we have a couple that are very active right now, but there's also a couple areas um, that don't have quite as much of that. Right. Um, and so that's, uh, that's interesting. So yeah, all, yeah, it's just interesting. All the kind of pieces here are connected and especially in New England where it really is people's responsibility. Yeah. Like you, exactly. you, you really can't just not participate. And if you do, the odds are that there's going to be decisions made that may not really reflect what your, you know, if your voice isn't there, your voice really isn't there. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, we're all we've got, right? <laughs> right. That would be a good, yeah. That's a good uh, bumper sticker or like town meeting tagline. We're all we've got. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so tell us a little bit about um, uh, life outside of daybreak. Um, is there life outside of daybreak? You know, what, what are some of your kind of favorite things about the Upper Valley and what, what do you do out, outside of this? And yeah, tell, give us a little bit oh, of well, flavor there. Um, you know, uh, there are lots of things that I think are just fantastic about the Upper Valley. The, the, you know, you, you have to start with, uh, with the natural setting that we're in. Yeah. Uh, which is, um, uh, you know, just... just not just beautiful, but I think for a lot of us, it's kind of the landscape of our soul. It's, yes. you know, it's, it, there's something about it that we respond to. And, um, and the ability to get out and uh, get to, you know, hiking, for example, that, uh, uh, you know, people often come across the country to be able to do right and that's a that's just a gift i'm gonna read all that so i like to spend time outdoors mm. um, in different ways cross-country skiing or kayaking or biking or whatever but um uh um and then i i i think that we are at the moment we're sort of walking through the dartmouth campus and um you know, it uh, is one of the, the uh, well, not the campus itself, but the, the resources that Dartmouth brings, uh, you know, in particular for the creative and performing arts, mm. brings lots to uh, the region. But, but so do, you know, the institutions in Lebanon, the Lebanon Opera House and mm -hmm. uh, Ava Gallery and um, the little galleries in, in White River Junction. And well, there's this thriving and vibrant cultural scene in the Upper Valley um, and beyond uh, that uh, also makes, uh, you know, makes living here really just a true pleasure. Uh, there are, uh, um, uh, you know, there's, and I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say you move to the Upper Valley because of the restaurant scene, but, um, but it's, you know, for where we are, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a fair amount of diversity uh, to it, uh, and um, uh, and so I, I I like that part of it too. But you know, in the end, what I come down to is uh, just I I think the uh, I think there's a um, there's a. a is that I really like the people who live here. Yeah. Um, there are all sorts of, uh, of people who, you know, who uh, either are um, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's people from all walks of life with lots of different kinds of knowledge uh, about the natural world or about um, carpentry or about uh, uh, you know how to how to um, uh, be out in the in the wilderness and uh, either adopt a you know kind of I'm gonna leave it untouched and. Uh, wander around, but I know my way around it. Or who come from generations of hunting families and mm. um, and treasure uh, the uh, you know treasure the the natural landscape as well as have deep knowledge about um, the woods and animal animal behavior. And I mean, we, there's just there's so much kind of knowledge you can tap out there, um, and uh, uh, and so. I just find it kind of endlessly fascinating. It's a really interesting place to live, um, uh, and um, and you know every town is different in its own way. And that, mm-hmm. and there are so many towns around here that the, the kind of um, you know the history of each town, the the way the culture and the way people think about their towns. You know, you you just have to go over to the next town, and you're in a completely different place. Right, um, right. And so that's also. Uh, that's also really kind of a gift, I think. Yeah. Yeah, there's interesting sort of diversity, but with common threads yes. in a lot of ways. Exactly. And, and, you know, we all identify ourselves as part of the Upper Valley. I think one of the other really valuable things about living here that I, that I suspected before I started Daybreak, but it's really come through to me, is there is really a sense here that I think, uh, that, I, that I don't think you necessarily see replicated um, I mean, yes, there are lots of different communities where there's a real communal spirit, um, but it's very strong in the Upper Valley. Yes, it and, is. Uh, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, there are other parts of both Vermont and New Hampshire where that's not the case. And, right. Uh, and so that's uh, uh, really a, a, a pretty uh, remarkable thing about being here, mm. to see that in action. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not just the sort of storms and emergencies where people right. come out and do that, but it's it's proactive. Right. It's all the time. It's all the time. Yeah, and you know, it's it's often it's not just often. It's usually unsung. It's often behind right. the scenes. You know, we don't know half of what goes on in terms of people helping out other people, uh, and uh, uh, and you know, but it's all around us and it's every day. Hmm. So I'm going to include some links um, for folks that if they are not subscribed to Daybreak somehow, uh, and maybe some of the other news organizations in the Upper Valley and things like that. But is there anything else that you want to share here? Any kind of anything we didn't get to uh, touch on, although we covered some pretty good ground, both literally and uh, figuratively. Um, anything else that you want to yeah, leave no, folks off with? The other thing I would say is, um, you know, find a... Uh, if you live in a place and you want to know what's going on around you and um, and and you want to uh, sort of take part in community life, find a news organization that speaks to you and then support it. And it could be the Valley News, it could be Vermont Digger, it could be NHPR, it could be, uh, you know, uh, WMUR. I mean, they're, they're, these, are, these are people who are know whose job it is to uh, uh, 
you know, to help you understand the world better, uh, of, of, you know, the world where you live better. And so, um, they, they need your support. That's what I would say. That's great. Well, that's good advice and a good place to leave off and appreciate uh, everything you do at Daybreak. It makes a really positive impact in a lot of people's lives and uh, in a lot of the communities here. And thanks for sharing a little bit about the uh, behind the scenes work and sure. jumping into some of these existential <laughs> rabbit holes for a little bit. <laughs> so thank you. One of these days I'll dig my way out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good luck. <laughs> Hey everyone, and thanks for checking out this special spotlight episode of Hanover Happenings. If you'd like to find all of the episodes of our Hanover Happenings podcast and prior updates, you can do so at HanoverHappenings.com or on wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like more information about other things happening in town, such as monthly reports, agendas, minutes, events, videos, and more, you can do so at HanoverNH.org. Thanks again for engaging with what's happening in your community.